encourage you to take your Bible to and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4 this morning. We're going to read the entire chapter. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle that camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take ourselves from Shiloh, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out, When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What is this noise? uh, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died For he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth 
for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken Let's pray together. Father, we ask that uh, you, by your Holy Spirit, would instruct us from your word today. Lord, we uh, pray that we would rightly understand this passage, uh, even though it's historical narrative, that we can uh, understand what took place. And we also can learn lessons and learn truths about you and learn uh, truths about ourselves and how we need to live in our day and time. And Lord, uh, this weekend we think of our freedom as a country. We think of uh, the privilege that we have to be in this land and to be able to worship freely together and to proclaim your word without fear of reprisal in any way. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for that as well. And, Lord, we thank you this, for this past week for our Vacation Bible School. We thank you for all the boys and girls who were part of it. And, Lord, we pray that uh, we would be able to continue to uh, reap the, the seeds that were sown. And, Lord, that we might uh, be able to continue to be an influence in the lives of children and their families. And, uh, Lord, that you would continue to work. Uh, through the summer months. We pray now for our students as they get ready to go to summer camp, that it would be a highlight of the summer for them. And, Lord, that you would just uh, provide uh, for their travel and provide for all that they need, that their hearts would be prepared for that time as well. So, Lord, we thank you for these months uh, that we can enjoy fellowship together, that we can uh, enjoy uh, being part of all that you're doing in our midst. So, Lord, bless again this morning as we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you do, I would encourage you that you probably should draw a heavy line between the first statement of chapter 4, verse 1, and the second one. I believe the first sentence of chapter 4, verse 1 should be the concluding remark of chapter 3. It says, thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. There should be a large period at the end of that sentence because we do not see Samuel again until chapter 7. So this statement should really go with chapter 3 because all throughout chapters 1 through 3, Samuel has become increasingly the focus of attention. But then, suddenly, he's no longer mentioned. His literary light goes out temporarily, so the author can develop a different theme. There is an abrupt shift here where the author or editor will relate the elimination of the old regime before returning to the establishment of the new leadership. 
And in this section, we learn some important lessons about archaeology, A-R-K-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Samuel is temporarily off the stage while the Ark of the Covenant takes the spotlight. Now, chapter 4 naturally falls into two main divisions. Chapter, or verses 1 through 11, and then verses 12 through 22. The first section describes a war with the Philistines and ends with a report of two deaths, that of Hophni and Phinehas. The second section relates to the report of the battle and also closes with two deaths, that of Eli and the wife of Phineas. The primary element of this section is the Ark of the Covenant, which is mentioned 12 times. And of course, anything that is mentioned that many times in Scripture must be given careful consideration because that is the Bible writer's way of placing emphasis on an important theme. Now, there is one geographical comment that I need to make before we launch into this, and that's the mention of Aphek, where the Philistines assembled. This is a city that was about 22 miles west of Shiloh. It is located along the coastal highway just north of all the major Philistine cities. And we also see the mention of Ebenezer in verse 1. This is where the Israelites assembled their troops. And we don't know the exact location of that, but it is safe to say that this battle took place between Shiloh and Aphek. Now, in order to gain a proper understanding of this account, we have to make two passes through verses 1 through 11. We're going to see, first of all, the human side, and then we're going to go back through and see the divine side. So the first main point is what I'm calling the two perspectives on conflict. The two perspectives on conflict. We're going to see this great battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, but we're going to see it from two viewpoints. The first viewpoint is what I'm calling the fallacy of deceptive presumption. Look with me at verse 2. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So far, so bad. This was the first engagement with the Philistines, and it didn't go so well. The literal Hebrew says Israel was struck down. So the elders of Israel call a council meeting. They've got to get to the bottom of this. Look at verse 3. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, first of all, note that they asked the right question and they phrased it in the right way. 
They wanted to know why this defeat came, and they rightly knew that God had allowed or even caused this to happen. The problem, though, is that they answered their own question too quickly. They should have paused for a while and seriously pondered the reason for this defeat. They should have let this defeat bother them for a little while. And if they had done that, they might have recalled what the Lord had declared in Leviticus 26:27 that if they disobeyed God and failed to keep his law, he said, I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. They might have remembered that if they had really stopped to think. If they had slowed down long enough to consider God's perspective, they might have come to realize that this was because of their own sin and rebellion. And perhaps they would have remembered Deuteronomy 28 verse 25. It says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies, and you shall go out one way against them, but you shall flee seven ways before them, and you shall be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. If they had stopped long enough to give careful consideration of why this was coming upon them, why it was happening to them, they would have recognized their own sin and the divine consequences. But instead, they reached a hasty conclusion and they came up with a faulty solution. Go back to verse 3. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies." Now, what did they have in mind here? Probably the great victory at Jericho. And as I'm sure you know, the people back in the time of Moses had marched around the city of Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant out in front, and God used that to cause the walls of the city to collapse, and they secured a great victory that day. They also had seeing how the Ark of the Covenant had stopped the waters of the Jordan River in Joshua 3 and 4. And they may have recalled the words of Numbers 10.35, which says, Then it came about when the Ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let those who hate thee flee before thee. So these events may have been on their minds. And for whatever reason, they were convinced that if they could just get the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, this would guarantee a victory over the Philistines. In fact, notice the way 1 Samuel 4.3 is worded in the New American Standard. It reads, Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. 
Here's what they're saying. Let's get that thing down here. Let's bring it in among ourselves and it will deliver us from our enemies. Nothing at all about the glory of God. Nothing at all about acknowledging any sin before God and repenting. Nothing at all about the real reason why this defeat was allowed by God. Just fetch the ark and we will win. Now, I'm assuming you know what the Ark of the Covenant was. If you've seen Indiana Jones, you know exactly what it is, right? Just kidding. No, the Ark of the Covenant was a gold box about three and three-quarter feet long by two and a quarter feet high, which was carried between two poles, that unless Israel was on the march in the wilderness, sat behind that veil in the tabernacle in the innermost part called the Holy of Holies. It symbolized God's covenant with his people. And it was flanked by two cherubim or angels. Speaking of angels, there's a little angel. In fact, look with me for a moment at 1 Samuel 4, 4, verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. The Lord of hosts would hover in the form of his Shekinah glory over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and... While the Ten Commandments in the Ark symbolized the law of God that the people could not keep, the blood that was sprinkled over the mercy seat served as a covering or atonement for their sins. And so the Ark of the Covenant became a symbol of reconciliation and salvation to them. But here in this case... It was, they were seeing it as a rabbit's foot to bring them good luck. They were viewing it as something which would guarantee a victory over their enemies. How often do we as humans follow the mantra, desperate times call for desperate measures? Now, another saying should probably go with that. And that's desperate people often do foolish things, right? This is where these people are. And it reveals the superstition and the pagan perspective of these people who thought that uh, they could have salvation in an object like this. They sincerely thought if they could just get the Ark of the Covenant into their camp, it would ensure a victory. J. Vernon McGee says the merit was not in that box because God was not in that box. You cannot get God into a box. The merit was in the presence and person of God himself. But what was the problem? The problem was they had forfeited the presence and power of God because of their disobedience and unbelief and sinfulness. Their own 
sin had brought about this defeat, but they failed to recognize it. And before we move on, I think we really should apply this to ourselves. I mean, how many times in the church do we try to manipulate God in some way? How many times do we fall into the same kind of superstition and think that we can put God into some kind of box? You know, it might come in the form of the faulty notion that, you know, as long as I have my St. Christopher on, I'm okay. Or it might come in the form of thinking that, We can guarantee success in the church through some sort of program. McGee says, we might say, look at this method. It is a nice little package deal. It is success in a box. This method will solve all our problems. In the same way, the Israelites of that day were seeing the Ark of the Covenant, as their ace in the hole. They thought if they could just bring God's furniture, they would have God's success. In the same way, some people think that just consuming a little wafer brings about God's salvation. So these Israelites thought that they would guarantee a victory by bringing God's Ark into the camp. And by the way, there's a technical point in verse 3 that I need to mention here. The language of verse 3 allows for a different translation. It could read, let him, Yahweh, come in among us and deliver us. I'm sticking with the way the New American Standard translates it as referring to it or the Ark of the Covenant. Because I believe the context indicates that's how this should be taken. But the Hebrew allows for either translation. However, what we need to understand is that it really means the same either way. When the Israelites brought the ark into their midst, they were assuming that it would force God to deliver his people in order to protect his own honor. After all, if something bad were to happen to the ark of God, then that would make Yahweh the loser, right? And Almighty God would never let that happen, or so they thought. Of course, we're going to see that God had an entirely different perspective. But what they're thinking is that God will have to save them because his honor is at stake. And really, this amounts to trying to twist God's arm, as detestable as that idea might sound to us. They're trying to pressure God. They're trying to manipulate God. Folks, this is rabbit foot theology. This is not biblical faith. This is superstition. This is deceptive presumption. Just because they had the symbol of God's presence in the camp did not mean they had God himself on their side. Now, I hope you understand this never works. It never works. You can't bargain with God. You can't manipulate and pressure God. You cannot 
twist God's arm. You can't put God in a box of some kind. This never works. And listen, this is very relevant for us in the church today because anytime we operate this way, we need to confess that we're not really submitting to God, but we're seeking to control Him. It reflects that we are more interested in success than holiness. That we are more prone to seek after some sort of religious magic than we are God himself. And rather than seeking God himself and doing his will, we seek some sort of pragmatic methodology that will ensure us success. Well, getting back to Israel, despite the excitement of the people when the Ark of the Covenant entered the camp, and despite the fear that it brought to the heart of the Philistines, their plan turned out to be a total failure. Verse 10 describes what we would never expect. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell in Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. In the first battle, they lost 4,000. Now they lost 30,000. Not only that, but verse 11 tells us the ark of God was captured. What a shock. The headlines in the local newspaper the next day would no doubt read, Yahweh unable to deliver his people. In their minds, this made not only God's people the losers, but God himself. And again, this is from the human perspective. But before we move to the divine side, there are Two really important implications for the church here. Dale Davis explains these two implications. He says, number one, Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And two, Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. Now, wait a minute. Stop and think about those two. Yahweh will suffer shame himself rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed in him if it will awaken in you the sort of God that he really is. Man, what valuable lessons. Davis says, contemporary believers must beware of thinking they are immune to this rabbit foot kind of faith. It is more prominent than most of us would like to admit. For example, what is really behind the methods that we employ in the church? When we have a 24-hour prayer vigil, is it for the purpose of truly seeking God and lining up with His will? Or is it to try to secure some sort of results? 
Could it be some way of trying to manipulate God to ensure some sort of earthly success? Here's the key. Anytime the church stops confessing, thou art worthy, and begins to chant, thou art useful, we have fallen into this trap. It is as if the ark of God has been captured all over again. And listen, that is exactly what the pragmatic church is all about. This is what the church growth movement is all about. It is the fallacy of deceptive presumption. It is all about seeking to manipulate God in order to accomplish some level of human success. But we need to move to the other side. We need to get God's perspective. Not only do we see in verses 1 through 11 the fallacy of deceptive presumption, but we also see the fulfillment of divine purpose. Now, the predominant tone of this passage is on the human side, but there's a hint of the other side in verse 4. As the elders of Israel are carrying out their ingenious plan, they send over to Shiloh a requisition to send the ark into the camp near Ebenezer. And notice the author just matter-of-factly states that the ark is in the care of Hophni and Phinehas. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. This is a very important point to the writer. Didn't God say something was going to happen to Hophni and Phinehas? Of course they would accompany the Ark of the Covenant into battle. After all, all they are the ones in charge of it. Well, technically, Eli was in charge of it, but it appears he pretty much lets these boys do what they want. And then there's another hint in verse 11. When the author of this book summarizes the results of the battle, he places the death of Hophni and Phinehas in the last position, which in this case would be the climax position. Look at verse 11. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It is obvious here. Any reader of this book would immediately recognize that this is the fulfillment of God's intention in chapter 2, verse 25, and his decree in verse 34. God had determined to put to death these two priests on the same day, and now he does exactly that. So here is the irony of this passage. While Israel's hope was that the bringing of the ark into the camp would be the key to their victory, God used that very thing to bring about his purpose of putting Hophni and Phinehas to death. On this day that 
might seem to dishonor God, he was actually working to restore his honor. He is doing that by removing the cancer from his tabernacle. And while he might temporarily be despised in Philistia, he would no longer be despised at Shiloh. But here's the point. Yahweh was not the loser. He was the winner. He was the one who was silently carrying out his own purposes. And he did it in a way that we might not expect, but he was working to restore his honor among his people. Even when the very symbol of his presence among them was taken by the enemy, he was still in control. This was no defeat at all. This was all part of his plan. Davis writes, One must be careful not to miss the way God is working here. It is so easy to be wrapped up in the bloodiness of Israel's defeat, in the tragedy of the ark's capture, in the blot on Yahweh's reputation, that one becomes blind to the fact that in the middle of all this, Yahweh is clearly but quietly fulfilling his own word. God is in charge. And in the fulfillment of his word, he's acting both in judgment and in grace. The judgment is the obvious death of these two priests. But his grace is seen in the fact that he's removing false shepherds that have been leading his people astray. And now he will begin to put his new leadership in place. In fact, with the death of Eli in verse 18, an entire era will pass away and a new one will begin. The entire slate of leadership will be removed. And that will clear the way for God's chosen man, Samuel. And by the way, notice one last thing here before we move on. Notice that God used the wicked Philistines to carry out his purpose. This kind of thing is seen many, many times in Scripture, including when he used the godless Babylonians to take his own people into captivity. God is always in control, and he is never limited by his means. He often uses those who are totally sinful and pagan to accomplish his own purposes. And, of course, this reminds us of the cross, because the Bible declares that God used godless men to crucify his only begotten Son, To win our salvation. In Acts chapter 2, Peter declared, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you 
nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. These godless men may have done the nailing, but it was God who predetermined for this to take place. This was all done according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And in the same way, the death of Hophni and Phinehas was no accident. Neither was the death of Eli nor the capture of the ark. God was working out his plan, and we can always be assured of that. There is nothing that ever occurs outside God's sovereign control. So we see in verses 1 through 11 the two perspectives on conflict. We have to make two passes over it in order that in the midst of the human perspective, we don't miss the divine purpose. There's a second main point here as well. So secondly, we see very quickly the tragic progression of compromise. The tragic progression of compromise. Now, the the last half of this chapter is a pitiful sight indeed. A very old, exceedingly overweight man is sitting on a seat by the road, anxiously looking over the horizon. He is looking, but he can't see anything. He is completely blind in his old age. And, of course, this is Eli, the high priest. He's obviously agitated. In fact, he is visibly shaking. Why? Well, first of all, because his two sons are on the battlefield. But even more than that, because he has allowed the ark of God to be taken into the camp of the Israelite armies. He is no doubt second-guessing his decision to allow that, and his fears are heightened when he hears a cry from the inhabitants of the city. He senses disaster, but he cannot weep at this point because nothing has yet been confirmed. And perhaps he hears the rapid pounding of feet But he cannot see the torn clothes and the soiled head of the messenger that is approaching him. And, of course, that was a recognized sign of mourning over a natural um, and a national disaster. In a case like that, a person would rend his garments and put dust on his head. But Eli can't see that. Eli knows nothing of this yet. He won't know anything for certain until someone tells him. And of course he suspects the worst, but that has not yet been confirmed. Finally, the messenger comes to him. He asks the messenger what all the commotion is about. And the man from the tribe of Benjamin informs him that the battle did not go so well. There has been a great slaughter of the armies of Israel. All the soldiers have fled before the enemy. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have been killed in the battle. And then comes the clincher, and the ark of God has been taken. That was the fatal blow. Not the death of his two sons, but the capture of the ark of the covenant. 
And the text tells us that upon hearing this, that he fell backwards and his neck snapped. Now, we were already told earlier that his heart was very close to exploding. Perhaps he initially had a heart attack, but he fell over backwards and, of course, immediately died. This was a dark day indeed. Too many steak dinners led to his demise. But after all, he was 98 years old. He and his sons died on the same day. How fitting. The man who should have known better, the man who had done nothing to remove the evil of his two sons from the office of the priesthood, that man now faced the judgment of God. But the scene shifts in verse 19 to his daughter-in-law. Phineas' wife was pregnant and was right on the verge of giving birth. When she heard all of this, it was too much for her. Her labor pains began, and right after she gave birth, she died. Look at verse 20. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And yet, her last words speak volumes even to us today. One commentator writes that probably she taught more theology in her death than Phineas had done his whole life. Look at verses 21 and 22. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the, the ark of God was taken. The name Ichabod either means no glory or where is the glory, but either way it means the same thing. In the eyes of the Israelites of that day, the symbol of God's presence had been taken away. In the Hebrew, verse 22 literally means the glory has gone into exile from Israel. H.L. Ellison asserts that The story of Phineas' wife is one of the most touching in the Bible, but he goes on to say she was wrong. The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark of God had been captured. The ark of God had been captured because the glory had already departed. The wickedness of this priestly regime had to be removed and replaced. And the lesson here for us is important. Sometimes God must depart from us temporarily to force us to seek him rightly. You know, I wonder how many churches there are that are in such dire spiritual condition that Ichabod should be written across their doorposts. I wonder how many professed Christians are living in such compromise that God has written Ichabod on them. What a tragedy it is, indeed, when the presence of God is withdrawn, when His glory is no longer evident among His people. This is where the progression of compromise leads. It leads to Ichabod, the glory 
has departed. Of course, theologically, we know that God is omnipresent and that he never leaves us. We know that we don't have to invite his presence among us because he's already present. But what this represents is that he is no longer present in the sense of blessing. Now he's present in the sense of judging. It means that the hand of his blessing has departed and now the hand of his chastisement has come. And by the way, we should ask ourselves why this condition can happen sometimes in the church. I believe it occurs when there's a departure from God's truth, when there's a famine of God's word, when preachers quit preaching the word of God faithfully, when biblical doctrine becomes replaced by all kinds of so-called relevant methodologies, that's when the glory departs. It also departs when the church becomes full of sin and compromise. And there is no doubt that we are in great need of revival in America today, but not the kind of revival that is focused on emotional experience. We need the kind of revival that comes when preachers return to proclaiming the truth of Scripture without compromise. If God has indeed written Ichabod across the church in America today, then what we desperately need is not some form of human manipulation. What we need is true repentance and a return to God's truth. Well, the scene is clearly set for the reformation that Samuel will bring. Oh, but the saga of the Ark of the Covenant is not complete yet. We'll see that next time. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you help us to understand this passage of Scripture, this account of this event in the history of your people. And, Lord, that we might, as your people 2,000 years removed from that, and even even more than that, Lord, that we would uh, understand that your word is living and powerful and Every part of it is given for our instruction and that we can learn valuable lessons from it as well. So, Lord, I pray that uh, you would uh, help us now to respond to your word. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this place that, that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they will come to know you today. Uh, Lord, we continue to pray that uh, you would uh, work through your Holy Spirit to uh, quicken your truth to our hearts and minds, that we might respond and be the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.